Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bobby and Jens. Today, we have a returning guest, Mr. Adam Hansen, president of the CPA. So hope you enjoy our chat with Adam. Okay, everyone, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Before we begin, we find ourselves with a, a bit of a dilemma. Um, we had our guest on today to talk about rider safety. Um, and then unfortunately today is the day that the Peloton lost Gino Mater. Um, so it's going to be a little bit more somber of a vibe. I think, um, we had planned this discussion long before this accident happened at the Tour de Suisse yesterday. And we'd like to dedicate this episode of the podcast in his memory. So without further ado, Adam Hansen, welcome back to Bobby and Jens. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me here. I don't know what to say. Uh, Jens and I are not journalists. We kind of gave you the option to to push this maybe down the road a little bit. We understand that you're in Australia. It's 4 a.m. for you, which is amazing. And um, yeah, you know, you, you've obviously been been busy, been working very hard to prevent the sort of issue that happened yesterday. Um, I don't really know where to start, but um, maybe fill us in um, on your last 24 to 48 hours um, after you heard the news of Gino crashing. Um. Yeah, so from my side, it was, um, but you know, this is, uh, how do I say, it's first time, and I hope the last time in my, um, uh, in my position to have something like this happen. Um, and when I heard about the crash, um, and heard, uh, some riders say it was dangerous, the situation, um, and it was, uh, not good to have a, a, a finish at the, at, at the, after a descent. I actually, um, I uh, posted a tweet that I did on a, a survey of riders. Um, and in that survey, a riders was asking, um, when should the last descent be before the finish? And I posted this tweet and um, I had a bit of uh, backlash from uh, some of the, well, um, one from an organizer. Um, and I had uh, also uh, some, let's say, some comments regarding downhill is part of the sport riders have to do this anyway and you know i defended the the position of the riders and, and the majority wanted the the descent not to be so close to the finish and and i do understand that descending is part of the sport and it's like cobbles is part of paris Bay. um they are dangerous but i just think that you should not have a finish line of cobbles, a finish line on top of a cobble section, because this is this just magnifies the danger of it. Um, and in this aspect, you know, when I was defending what the riders were saying online, it was more that um, yes, downhill is part of the sport, but by giving you know a little bit of flat section after, just puts in the rider's mind that I must not go over my limit on the descent. Um, there is a chance I can move up. And that just gives the riders an extra, um, yeah, it takes a little bit pressure of descending. 
And then um, once the, the news broke out, um, I removed my tweet because this is not, uh, I think, a time to um, have arguments if it's right or wrong. Um, I think we should be thinking about different things at the moment. And I also removed it into respect of a lot of the comments that we're saying because um, it did make a lot of people look bad how they uh, responded to my tweet um, because for me, it's I just want to minimize the risk um, in the sport. So um, I, I, for also for them because I don't want everyone to be uh, uh, to be against everything that I post. And while there was some people that were against what I posted, it makes them look very bad in the situation because they were saying that, yeah, I actually don't want to say what they were saying. Um, so I just wanted the whole topic to be sort of removed. And then I had a whole bunch of journalists wanting to speak about everything because in, in reaction to what I said and what I said was before the news came out and, um, and I just wanted this time to be more about, um, yeah, the situation and not let's have a fight with the organizer or something like this. And were you aware of uh, how terrible the crash was or you were also a little bit into the unknown with that because yesterday night, well, European time, um, we heard, okay, he's in stable condition. So you would slowly start to have some hope for, for, for it. Um, did you know earlier that it is actually really looking really terrible or you were also a little surprised by then the message uh, this morning? Um, in my experience, when there's a helicopter at a race, um, this is never good. Um, and I heard a helicopter pick them up. I heard that um, um, he actually um, uh, passed away in the scene and, and, and the medical team brought him back. So this is never positive news. Um, and But, you know, inside of me it was, okay, he's in hospital. He's in very good care. He has everything there. Um, so I, I thought it was a lot better than the situation that happened. Um, and that's why I continued the discussion about, um, you know, having finishes at the bottom of descents. Um, but then, um, I did hear that things were getting worse throughout the night. And then, um, yeah, I, I heard, um, just before the announcement, which is, um, yeah, terrible. I mean, it, it it's, it's so hard to ask, um, any other question, but for our listeners and now viewers, you know, you are the president of the CPA and you really, your, your stance was all about rider safety from the get-go and you've been very active. Uh, I've heard nothing but good things from the riders of how um, focused you are on this. And what are the main challenges? Because yes, we are not in a stadium. Uh, we are taking risks, even if it's on, on the flats. But what are the main challenges? I mean, obviously, even before today with, you know, maybe this descent not being in the right place, but you did 20 grand tours consecutively and you went down probably every descent on, on the planet, but what are the main focuses for you from that rider safety perspective? It's, you know, cycling is not a safe sport. And I think we can all agree on that. 
Um, and for me, it's small changes can make a big difference. And even if we're able to minimize um, uh, minimize the risk and dangers in the sport, this is a this is a huge help. Um, there are there are a lot of there are a lot of small things, and what I mean a lot of small things that that can make a big difference. I'm talking about if there's a car on the road and a policeman stops it with a whistle and he stands in front of the car. I've I've surveyed riders and they say they want the policeman with the whistle indicating it to be 40 meters in front. And if you do the calculation, that gives riders an extra 2.4 seconds reaction time, which can be a lot. It can be a big difference. This is no cost for an organizer to educate the motorbike riders that when you come to an incident in a race, don't stand in front of the car, walk 40 meters in front of the car and notify the riders before. Um, if it's as simple as when a rider, when a motorbike rides in front of the peloton and it cannot get off the road, instead of just staying parked on the road to drive 20 kilometers an hour, so it slowly gets fed into the peloton and gets swallowed up, it also gives riders more time to adjust that a motorbike's coming through. Um, there, are, there are very small things that can help, and I think there's an education problem um, between what the organizer thinks that's correct and what the riders can handle. Um, we also have a missing connection in the situation where uh, the UCI is a database of all crashes. Um, I think all of us can say of a situation where we came very close to having an accident, but it was not an accident because of our skills. And this is, I would call, uh, a near miss. And this can be a very dangerous situation, but it's not documented. Um, and in my experience, when I was racing, when I was young, I didn't think about things, but as I got older and I started realizing you do a descent, you see a corner of a building that's exposed on the road and you think, okay, I can hit my head on that. You see a plant pot. I can hit my head on that. You see the gutter. If I crash the wrong way on that, that can be fatal also. There's all these different situations where it's very hard to control a bike race, um, to make it as safe as possible. And the only thing that we can do is just to minimize the risk. And that's something that I, I, I asked the riders what they wanted. And this is something that they really, you know, I, I asked before I ran for presidency, what's, what are the three things you want me to focus on? It was very random, everything, but always number one was safety from the riders, men and women. So this is why I'm going down that route. So with um, all the road furniture on the road, you just mentioned some of the flower pots and so on. Do you think it would be safer instead of having the traditional cycling stage races from city A to city B have like some type of world championship circuit in the city and just ride on that? That way you could con control the environment a little better. The riders would have more time to see the circuit, maybe at a slow speed in the first laps so you could memorize potential dangerous places. Would that be a future or you don't see see that going anywhere you know the the situation you just uh, mentioned Jens is that's the optimal situation um obviously but I just I can't see organizers having this you know with especially with the grand tours um they need to go A to B and the situation the the organizer this <laughs> some things I say that I do I get remarks that I'm killing the sport um because I'm taking out some you know, important things that have been traditionally in cycling. Um, I'm not trying to kill the sport. I'm just trying to make it safer. Um, the, the scenario you just mentioned is really making, that's, that's the optimal 
that would be the optimal, safest way you could have a road race. But organizers just would never agree with that. But I, I agree with you that like that would be you know the ultimate. Yeah, I mean, Grand Tours, any bike race does need to go from from point A to point B. Um, but I watch a lot of races on TV or streaming services, and I'm I'm so nervous because now we have such better photo angles. We have the helicopters, we have the drones, we have all the the onboard cameras. Um, you know, watching that Netflix series Unchained, and then seeing the footage that is, I guess, owned by Velon just reminded me of all those years that we were taking risks, you know, going into corners, sprint finishes, uphills, downhills. And now it's just so much more obvious to me that this sport is very, very dangerous. And I don't think we'll ever be able to, it's not like we're going to ride around with a, I don't know, little bumpers on so that if we fall over, you know, inflates like an airbag or something like that. But the history of the sport, the, I guess the ingrained mentality is you need to be a warrior. You need to be a tough guy. You need to take risks. You need to beat the other guy to, to get your name in lights. But is there a limit? I, I'm, I don't know these days because I haven't been in the Peloton for a long time. But we're looking at the speeds that these, that the current Peloton is traveling at, and the equipment is amazing. The clothing is incredibly faster. The the wheels, I mean, it just goes on and on. What? There, there's really no simple answer to this besides that. Listen, we've all lost someone. Um, either a teammate or a friend, um, a competitor at one time or another. And I think that happens in every sport. But what can we do to minimize the the speeds or take off the pressure? Because now, like you said, the moment a, a helicopter comes to a race, you know that's not a good thing for evacuating a rider, but it's also when you see the helicopter come in, you know there's live TV and then the speed goes up even more because everyone wants to to be in the front. Is there a way to mellow riders out? Is, is something like this going to make people think a little bit more or is it just part of the sport? Yeah. yeah. You said it so well, Bobby, that... Um with all the extra cameras on, everything's exposed better, um, and we see it in a in a different in a different light. Um, as a retired cyclist, that I'm sure both of you can say this, uh, we were very lucky. Um, some of the things that we did, uh, we're very lucky in that sense. Um, you know, it is. I, I don't like this mentality that it's you know cycling is a tough man sport. Um, in one sense, it's good. It shows how strong we are, how how we fight through, how how we're so resistant to everything. But you know, in the, in the episode in the Giro where um, on stage ten, when the weather was horrible, um, ten riders went home 
after uh, during that stage and then another 10 riders ran home afterwards and they just said it's part of the sport the riders must fight through um my 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 concerns were mainly okay that's what that's what the media sees and that's what the people at home see but if a rider stops because he's got the cold we know that that rider's had the cold for at least a week and he's been fighting through for a week and you don't see that on tv you know and and a rider just doesn't catch a, a little cough and goes home he fights really for a whole week before like going home is the last resort a rider can do and it's a failure inside of a rider no rider wants to go home um you see these crashes where riders just get up on their bike and continue it's not like football where the whole game stops the race continues if you crash the longer you're on the ground the harder it is for you to get back so we do have this mentality that you know you just keep pushing through pushing through and you know, I always said, when are we gonna? When are we gonna? You know, where's the line? Where's the line of this? And 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 yesterday, um, that's the line. That is the line, in my opinion. And and I think, um, you know, there has to be a change, and and not a dramatic change. Obviously, we don't want to kill the sport, but if we can, if we can just reduce the incidents, even by fifteen percent, that's a huge win. In my, my, my eyes, if we can reduce the incidents by 15%, it's a massive win. And I don't understand why a lot of people aren't fighting for this. I, I really don't. I, I know it's more work and, and it's harder for the organizers. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, I don't want to say I'm a bit disappointed in the teams, but I thought the teams would have a backing more. Um, because when I, when, I, when I think about it, if, you know, we've all been there. You've crashed, you've broken a bone, you're home for three weeks or four weeks, you're out of racing, we still get paid. You know, if you survive, you still get paid. But the teams, if you got a if you got a five million euro rider like we saw this year, he's out for two months, that team has invested so much money into that rider and he's just sitting at home doing nothing because he cannot race. So I would have thought there'd be more of a push from the teams to also help in the safety side. Um, I'm starting to see it now, but I, I, I would have thought it would have um, happened a bit earlier. But yeah, there's something that definitely needs to be um, worked together to, to, to improve the situation for the riders. So we're here then, um, in order to add to Bobby's question to make it safer, um, it's just unfortunately, I believe, another fantasy ID. How about we give every bike rider a standard bike, 10 kilo weight, steel frame, 32 spokes, flat rims. So they would go a lot slower. Would that make it safer? Yeah, that's... Uh, because they would go much slower. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really good point. Um, as Bobby said, the bikes are so much faster. So much faster. Um, the wheels are faster. The, the frames are faster. Riders are, There's riders going in wind tunnel testing on the normal bikes. Um, so we have Arenberg in Paris-Roubaix. And I was saying that this year was crazy. And I've had sports directors come up to me and say, do we really need this cobble section in the race now? Because they enter it way too high speed. Um, but on the, on the other side, we had, um, we had remarks about how about we make some type of hairpin before Arenberg. So instead of their racing in 45, 50 kilometers an hour hitting it, if we can have some type of S-bend or they, before they go down, because the street is almost, uh, you almost go straight into Arenberg, there's a street to the right. If they can go down there, do a hairpin, and then do like a like a 900 degree corner, 
we can slow that speed down maybe by 10 or 15 kilometers. Maybe race design should be altered a little. So in these dangerous situations, we don't have the riders coming in like the world championships on a sprint day into Arenberg. And, you know, these are other tactics that um, we can use to keep this into the sport, but maybe force the riders to slow down. Um, I think this is, this is, um, these are small tactics that we can do to improve it, but riders are going so much faster. It's, and, and, and with their pressure combined, it's like, as I was getting older, I was leaving bigger gaps in the, in the corners. I know, I know I can always, you know, make the distance to catch up. And I just wanted that extra one second reaction time. If something goes on, but you open a gap, you know what it's like another rider fill and you're like, I can close it. I just want that security, <laughs> you know, give me some space, you know. Um, but you've got young guys that just haven't had the crashes that we've had or I had, and, and they just, they, yeah, they just have no idea. It's it's the pressure, the young guys. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really tough thing to um, try to improve without killing the sport and um, making the younger guys understand how dangerous it is. I kind of want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about race radios. You know, race radios is a hot topic. You know, it seems like there's some people in the sport that don't want them. I always love them, not necessarily for the, hey, eat, drink, spin your legs um, sort of things that we would hear, but it was more about, hey, there's a dangerous bridge coming up or there's a pinch point coming up. That was the real reason why I loved radios. And that is kind of under threat of, hey, we don't need that in this in the sport. Um, CGM, continuous glucose monitoring, so that guys know when they're low in energy, low in glucose, where your lucidity isn't quite as strong. Um, that's been banned in races by the UCI. With With all the demands that are put on these younger and younger riders who have less and less experience and less and less fear, you know, let's face it, our, our whole world is, hey, let's do something crazier. Let's do something more risky. Let's um, get on YouTube or get on TV. With, with rider safety outside of the road furniture, the dangerous finishes, the dangerous cobblestone sections, is there anything else that we're we're missing that we could possibly inject into the sport that will help the riders kind of calm down a little bit? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, this is a uh, you know going just to 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 continue on the radio talk. Um, a lot of times, you know, ninety nine percent of the times, or ninety percent of the times, you don't need a race rodeo. But there is those times where you said, you know, I've had organisers tell our sports directors that a a um, uh, an ambulance is coming through the opposite direction to the peloton because it's a rider, and this is when you really need a radio um, for the safety of the riders. Um, if there's something that we could add, um, if I knew. It, if someone knows, please tell me, and I'll <laughs> I'll add it. But uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know the answers to this question. Maybe if if we would have the technology, the race organizer, the UCI, could maybe block the team radio and only open it at certain times. Let's say we open it 
after 30 kilometers and then 60 and then 120 kilometers. Or they only open the radio when they want to say something. Well, hey, there's a protest on the road. Please stop there. Or there's an oil trace on the right side in 10 miles to go. Maybe that could work. What, what do you think? We would have the technology to do that? Yeah, that's a good point. I actually had a question, and I, and I, I don't remember who, who asked me this, but maybe, maybe what we could have is where we could have somehow that the, the organizer could, um, like you said, sort of chim in into our channel and, and, and give us the, the more dangerous points coming up. Um, and I was trying to, um, and I forgot why this, this was added into, into the conversation. But I was saying, yeah, with today's technology, I, I don't understand why we can't have that. Where you know, maybe maybe a sports director is talking into your ear, for example, and then the the organizer has this override feature where he sends a message to all the riders. You know, um, like the situation I said, ambulance is coming in opposite direction. All please move to left hand side of the road. Let the ambulance through. Um, but yeah, it's it's a valid point, and. Um, yeah, I wish I, I wish there could be something that could be added easily to just to make it a lot safer. And we'll be right back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Adam. You know, I, I believe that a big part of leadership is just the ability to listen. And I know in your position, you're not going to be able to please everyone. You know, 50% of the people will support it. 50% will say you're you're crazy. But give us a, an example during that Jiro stage where it was shortened. What was the communication like between you and the teams that ultimately came up with shortening that stage and making a very, very good decision? Um. So the biggest problem with the Giro was stage 10. Stage 10 was when we saw uh, 20 riders uh, drop out within a 24-hour period because of um, uh, cold and COVID and, 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 and their health. And stage 10 was the worst stage. I, I had numerous messages that stage 10 was the worst um, stage that riders have ever competed in, um, in the cold factor. And the biggest problem, and this is where a lot of people fail to understand why it was so bad, um, when you have a mountain stage and 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 it's super cold, the peloton is really spread out, spread out over kilometers. And you only got two cars. So one car and the cars are servicing the riders and they're giving them new jackets and, and um, warm tea and that. And when a car goes forwards and supporting a rider at front, these these left five riders behind and they're just freezing. And a lot of like we saw the images, there were there were photos of of swan years helping the riders put the jackets on because their fingers were numb and they couldn't do it now if that car has stopped for one rider he's got six riders or seven riders just suffering stopped on the side of the road somewhere else so it's very hard for the cars to go back and forth to service all the riders and what 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 this means is these riders are getting in worse and worse conditions and when you have to do a descent in the cold in the wet you cannot power through the descent. You cannot ride through the descent to stay warm. You basically, you got to go slow because the corners are dangerous. So you're going slower. You can't sprint out of the corners because the roads are wet. So you're not keeping warm. Your body core is getting colder and colder. And some of the descents are 20 minutes without even pedaling and you're wet and cold. It is, it is super cold. And this is what I was trying to explain um, to the organizer how it's so bad. 
Now, when stage 13 came about, oh, also on stage 10, um, we had a bit of, a, a, let's say, an argument with the organizers saying the weather's really bad and they said the weather's fine. We had our um, weather guide. They had their weather guide and it was just totally different. And at the end of the day, we took their weather advice and it was a horrible day. Um, they also complained that we cannot change something the morning of the race. So stage 13 was coming. It was very bad weather forecast the day before. And I basically said to the guys, okay, this is what's happening. We can't do anything the morning of the race. The organizer does not want us to do that. So we have to make a decision the day before. And the day before, when the riders were saying how bad the weather was, the weather was a lot worse than what actually happened on stage 13. But this is what the organizer put onto us, that we had to do it well in advance. So the teams were a bit upset because they're losing riders. I think there were some teams finished with two riders or something. And then we also heard stories about, ah, but, you know, in the olden days, there was less riders come to the finish. And my argument was, yes, but this is riders that weren't strong enough, crashed out. We're talking about the health of the riders here. I've never seen a situation where 20 guys go home in 24-hour period because they've got a cold. And if 20 guys go home because they've got a cold, there's another 40 at least still with the cold racing. And that's what people don't realize. They're still there suffering. And we made a decision well and truly before on the, the, the eve of, I think it was a Saturday night, um, the day before. And we made an agreement with the teams and the riders. Okay, we make a vote. And whatever happens, everyone must respect the rider's decision. And we make the threshold 80%. Now, if it's 79%, sorry, you must all respect that you must continue. But if it goes over the 80%, the 20% or the 10%, depends how far it goes over, please stay united. You're not going against the CPA. I'm not racing. If you go against the decision, you go against your own colleagues. You race with these guys again next month, next year. So I, I really hope everyone respects the decision, even if you don't vote for it. We made a voting for it. The teams 100% respected it because they, the teams have a lot better view inside the, the, their own team. They know the real situation of the riders, and they respected it because it's also hard on the staff. It's also hard on Jens on the motorbike. It's not so, it's not so easy. And when the threshold went over, it was respected. We sent an official letter to the UCI president, the organizer, the commissaire at the race, and they acted. Um, the, the wording of the letter was very good. We said the riders united. They'll stick on the decision. And, um, yeah, the organizer listened very well. So in this sense, it actually worked out well. Okay, let's have a little easier question for you now because we cover a lot of hard topics. The problem with the TV motorbikes being too close, it sometimes it does help the breakaway because they get pulled away by the motorbikes. Um, then there's a second TV bike helping the peloton to chase. And often we have seen a rider from the team that has somebody in the front group is waving at the motorbike to move away. That should be relatively easy to solve that. Let's say, okay, it has to be 50 meters in between point. What do you think? Yeah, this is a this is a complaint I get a lot by the riders, um, where uh, the motorbikes are helping quite a lot. Um, I'll tell you one crazy uh, situation. Do you remember in the Velter? I forgot what year, a few years back, where the whole peloton was out of time. It was like 80 guys that reached out of time. So the story was, um, I think it was Nibley was in the first group that was behind the motorbikes. There was a second group chasing. 
they're also behind the motorbikes. Um, and the Peloton was not behind the motorbikes. Team Sky went to the front, the whole of Team Sky. Um, and they went absolutely maximum trying to chase these two small breakaways. And he was like four minutes, seven minutes, nine minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. And basically, um, Sky was like, this is impossible. If, if, and Sky was, they had a good classics team there that couldn't close the gap. Um, that was very strong on the flat. And once Sky stopped, the rest of the bunch looked up and sort of went, well, if Sky can't close it, no one can close it. Um, and then it drew out to 30 minutes. And I think um, it was like 120 guys were out of time and only 20 guys finished. And it was the two two breakaways were behind the motorbikes um, catching each other. So motorbikes make a huge, a huge impact into the sport. Um the ideas that we've been throwing through is maybe have a radar system on the motorbikes. Um, so if if they come too close to the riders, um, uh, a red light will flash or a siren will flash. Maybe this would help. Um, we are we are trying to put different methods. We are testing different equipment. We also spoke to um, I think it's called Ranger One from Triathlon, where they do have this draft system in Triathlon. Um, the only problem with the triathlon system that they use for non-drafting races in triathlon is that every bike must have this device, um, and this makes things a bit more complicated. It is a heavy device. Um, it could be tampered with, and I know the UCI is also looking into this, um, Michael Rogers, so we've been um, talking quite a lot, but we do believe there should be a radar system on all the motorbikes, all the photographer motorbikes, the, the camera motorbikes, um, and if they go too close to the, the riders behind, um, then uh, yeah, some warning goes off and there should be some control deck that sees it. And if they do it too long, too often, they should be out of the race. I, I, I went back and I listened to the first time you came on our podcast back in September of 2021. And I, I was, even back then, I was just like, how many hours are in Adam Hansen's day? because he has so many things going on. You know, you started the Australian Professional Association. Now you're president of the CPA. Um, is this taking up, an, because, I mean, is this taking up an exorbitant amount of time for you? I mean, have you had to put some of your personal projects aside? Because Honestly, I, I have so much respect for someone like yourself that can give so much time and energy to the riders that, you know, you never, you probably don't even know half of them or three quarters of them. What What is your daily sort of, I guess, time allotment for this position? Because it seems like you're the most engaged president of the CPA um, that I can remember. Um but it's it's got to take a toll on all the other projects that you're you're involved with, right? Yeah, it is. Um, and I have to address this uh, soon uh, because it is taking a, a massive toll. Um, and and the, the the reason why I'm so engaged is because the the, the CPA didn't have a good um, reputation before, um, and this is what I'm trying to rebuild. Uh, and you know, I've been engaging with the riders personally. I've told the riders personally they can contact me. Uh, a lot of riders, there are still a lot of riders I race with, um, and this has helped. And a lot of them do have my personal contact, and I want everyone to have my personal contact. Um, other members of the CPA have asked 
has said that you know they don't have to contact me but the riders do trust me and um and i want to keep it that way and i want the riders know they can come out and reach me anytime they want um and i've had a lot of and they do that um but it, it is uh you know this 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 new role is it does take a lot of time um i do work around the clock and um but i think especially for the cpa it has to be like this and and just to give some examples so like when um the Giro stage happened or the ladies pyrenees tour happened um you could plan your whole day like normal and with other work and things like this and then this situation happened and basically you're on your phone until after the race until both with the Giro and also the pyrenees tour i was i was with the pyrenees tour we had um we had arguments about the safety on um on saturday's stage and basically um you know i had a, 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 a protocol that i go through when i try and talk to an organizer i'm also well connected with um, other organizers and i asked for advice on okay how's the best way we tackle this and kiko um who's in charge of, um, of all the organizers association um he said the last thing you do is cancel a race and i said i don't want to cancel the race i just want to know what's the best thing and he you know 11 o'clock at night he's looking for a different course for the ladies that is more safe and he gave me a different course i'm on the phone call with the um with the organizer at i think it was just before 12 trying to negotiate a different course they're stuck to the course they said it's safe i said well we have a different opinion they said it's much better than Friday stage. I don't know if you saw Friday stage, the women's Pyrenees tour. It was mental. Like just watch the last four kilometers. There's three cars on the course coming in opposite direction. One car almost drove into the peloton. 2K to go. The girls went around a driving car on the course. Um, it was really an unsafe situation. And when the organizers argued that stage uh two which was on saturday um was so much better and the riders complained they did a protest i watched the whole stage again at one o'clock in the morning to to really find all the situations and what i found was is there were motorbikes stopping the cars the cars would see the motorbike stop the motorbike would drive away the car would be left there like why did i stop because they did not know a bunch was coming and then the car would go onto the onto the course and then the riders would come then the car would get off the course and the race jury never would see this because by the time the bunch goes through and then you have the car that's um, already stopped, the, the organizer and the race jury is like, yeah, the cars are on the side of the road. It's it's much better where it's not. So I watched the whole stage again and that finished until 3 o'clock in the morning and then I had to do the official email and then I had to be up at 7.30 to make sure all the different stakeholders get the information. And um, and this was like for two – and then you wait for the whole morning. You can't – your whole day is destroyed because you're in community constant communication you don't know what's going to happen so when these situations happen in the in the cpa yeah it really destroys two days of my personal life and my other work and then i'm just playing catch up um it is a bit of a toll but uh i think the the riders definitely need something like this because there's you know what cycling's like we don't have sundays in cycling you know <laughs> my partner's like it's the weekend put your phone down and i'm like the weekend is that's when everyone's racing and usually Saturday and Sunday is the most important stages. And, you know, she's questioned me like it's 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. You're still on your phone talking to people. I'm like, that's cycling, you know. If you're outside of the sport, you don't realize this is a 24-7 job. It really is. Um, and I have to be there for the riders. And I want to be there for the riders because I used to be them. And if, no, if I don't do it, no one's going to do it. That's the sad thing. So, um yeah, I have to get more into my personal life on the direction I'll go because at the moment it's um 
yeah, it's a lot of work. So would you need a little bit of a bigger financial basis and then you would have a assistant or an office with, let's say, somebody, let, let's let's start with three days a week working at the office from nine to one to, to sort your emails and requests and an assistant that can travel and then you don't have to travel everywhere. Would that help and how much bigger would your budget then need to be? If I had another guy like me, motivated like me, and really no conflicts of interest, really, you know, stands their ground, um, and not afraid to go against the the organizers and that, and the UCI, um, yeah, we're definitely severely helped. But, you know, it comes down to budget. That's the, and, you know, it's it's a bit of a catch-22. We've had riders in the past complain about funding, giving money to the CPA, because, in their opinion, the CPA didn't do anything in the past. So for me to be elected and say, okay, guys, I want more money, um, I have to prove that first. And I understand that. I, I completely understand that. Um, if people knew the, the the budget for my role, they would ask me a few times, why am I doing this? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think first after, it's, it's like a contract, you know, like as a cyclist, you're worth as good as your last year. doesn't matter what you do the following year. You got you got to show your value and, You know, if I can show my value um, to the riders and say, okay, if I can have another version of me working with me, um, we can get a lot more done. So um, first I want to show what we're, well, what I can do and um, then I have to find some of the same mindset as myself and that wants to put, you know, the time and effort, not as scared to go against the organizers and UCI and really help the riders. Um, yeah, I think the CPA can do very good for the riders. But Correct me if I'm wrong. There is a CPA women that's led by Alexandra Capoletto. Like, would this not fall more on her shoulders? In particular, that 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 Pyrenees race that we saw with you know the the traffic concerns. Um, would that not fall more into her basket rather than than yours? Or is there a fill me in a little bit on the cooperation that you have with the CPA women organization? Yeah, so with, with the, um, you know, Alessandra's very good and she was with me the whole way and everything. Um, I, I just feel, I just feel, you know, my dad always had the saying, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. Um, and it's it's not that I don't, like, Alessandra's very good. And and a lot of these women are very, they say they're very hardcore women. They have a lot of passion and, and they really, um, they really fight for the women uh, rights also. Um, but these women need support. Um, Alessandra really needs support when she stands up against organizers and doesn't know what to do. And can we really do that? And for me, it's like, it doesn't matter. We do what the writers say. And if it's wrong, we just, that's, that's not our, that's not our, it's, well, it's not our, I don't want to say it's not our problem, but it's like, it's not our decision. If the writers wish that we have to say what the writers wish. That's, that's our job. And if we don't support the writers, then we're not doing our job. And this sort of has to, I, I feel that, I think in the past it was sort of like, ah, okay, this is what the writers want, but it's hard for the organizer and, you know, and we don't want to upset the organizer also because we need to talk to them in the future. Um, and I'm like, it doesn't matter. We just have to do what the writers want. If we do what the writers want and even if it's wrong, we won't lose respect from the writers. And I never want to lose respect from the writers. And we have to support the decision. And I just think that's normal. Um, 
But going back to the, the Pyrenees tour, Alessandra's really good. She organized, she really helped with organizing the calls. We had multiple calls with the organizer, with the um, the race director also. Um, she helped out a lot. Um, but it's it's a bit new. Let's say it is a bit new that the riders are more standing up to these situations. Um, and I'm so, sort of implementing the process on how to do the vaulting, what we do when we have the vaulting, try and negotiate with the organizer first. Um, and if they don't negotiate and they're just – like that's to me that was the, the the biggest problem with the Pyrenees tour. If they would have accepted that it was not on on to a certain standard, and they will improve the next day, then that's easier for me to go back to the riders and say, okay, I know this is what you want, but the organisers have acknowledged what they did is wrong, and they know how to step forward. So how about we listen to them and move this way? But if the organisers like it's good perfect it was done perfect the riders are spoiled women what do they expect they're not going to change you know and for me it's like okay i'm sorry then we'll do everything possible to make sure the the safety of the women so when you make this type of stance it's this is a big change to how the cpa worked in the past and just the current members just need to be shown that it's okay to be let's say not i don't want to use the word forceful but um just act in the correct manner of the of the riders um, so now we, we talked about the, the present and some of the past, a little bit into the future. Um, I remember there was a pension system for riders. Do we have that still going on? How is it going? And do we have something like that in mind for women cycling? Because women cycling only came really good and strong in the last years. So do they have something? And to add to the question, is there a program to educate the riders, men and women, about, hey, listen, you earn 10 years, good money, but there's 70 years of life left after that. So you need to have a plan to actually ease a little bit into your retirement here. Is there some education program for that? Yeah, very good question, Jens. Um, so at the moment, um, we call it a transition fund. So it's basically a, a small little package for them to transition into their new life after cycling. Um, we are the only sport that offers something like this. So there is a there is a like pension and everything in other sports, but this is something you really get directly after you retire and it's a transition fund. So at the moment, um, the, 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 the male world tour teams and pro continental teams um, get this if they do five years of racing um, in, in pro tour world tour. And the payout is between 10,500 to 12,500. Uh, euro, depending if you're a pro conti rider for five years or world tour rider for uh, five years or longer. Um, this is still going. This is going actually very well. Uh, we did have a, a sort of a bad period during COVID because we had less races, and this is based on the, the transition fund is funded by prize money. So we had less money going in, and we had more riders retiring. So this this caused little headaches, but we got we got through that. Um, what we had to do is we had to split up the, the payout um, into two payments. I think one was in March and then one was two months later. And then after that, I supported this idea to continue this because I don't think it's good to – a rider retires and you just give them the money because they're still in that, let's say, bubble where they're making lots and spending lots. Yeah, they go and buy a motorbike with that. <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> so I really like the idea where they retire – they have a couple of months of like no money and then it's like then they understand the value of money so when they do get the money they're like okay let's use this um in a more proper way um 
In terms of improving this and also to your other question about educating the riders, some teams do have a program where they sort of do have some type of form of education for the riders to give them different skill sets so they can do something after the sport. Um, some teams, so the French teams are very good at this. Um, there are some other teams that offer some type of education forms also. Um, and we're actually, mo- one of the other things I'm working at the moment is improving the joint agreement. So for the viewers that don't know, this is the contract between the, the teams and the riders. Um, and we're trying to improve the minimum salary, increase the um, minimum wage. Um, and a lot of teams did have some type of education put in for the riders. And my, and, I, and the, some of the teams spent a lot of money on this for the riders too. And it just didn't work um, because the teams were, let's say, creating the system for riders what they think they wanted to do. Um, my remarks was, well, how about instead of creating these programs and that, how about you just offer more to the transition fund? And that means the riders can actually have more money in the transition um, because that means you're you're putting the same amount of money in. It's 100% sure the riders get it, and it's 100% sure the riders will use it for what they want. If you do, because I've seen too many times where teams have put some type of education in um, for the riders, and that's something that they just never do when they retire. So I think that's um, a bit wasted money. But on the other side, we do need some form of education, and I don't mean education in the form of a skill set, more of a knowledge set of what is life like after cycling. Because as you said, Jens, it is it is a long time for when you retire to after is um, you have to get through life and riders have to be educated a lot better. Um, what I want to have in place um, for the younger riders is more investing um, into their future. So um, good investments instead of buying cars, watches, things like this. Um, this is something that uh, I really want to have for the riders because life is long and cycling is short. Yeah, and these young kids are, you know, turning pro so much younger. Um, they're succeeding so much earlier and their careers, who knows if these men and women these days even want to have a 15 or 20 year career like so many of us had from our generation, right? So like reality is going to hit a little bit better. And I've always thought, instead of getting that one lump payment, like the year after you retire on January 1st, you know, to maybe stagger that a little bit more because yeah, when you have disposable income, you know, that $12,500 isn't that big of a deal, but six months later, you're going to appreciate that 12,500 euros a lot more. And maybe even putting aside, you know, almost like a pension where, you know, you're, this is your money. You, you have access to it, but you can only access it six months after you retire and then another payment a year after you retire and you know so on and so forth. But um, I, I think that's a great idea. We have to find a way to, to help riders transition out of the sport. But I remember one thing that you said on our podcast back in 2021 that really kind of stuck with me. You said that you like to finish what you start. So where is the finish line here with the CPA for you? <laughs> um, I definitely want to improve the transition fund. I want this payout to be um, a lot more and I want it to be um, uh, staggered a lot more, um, exp- uh, exactly how you explained it. This is, this is definitely something um, um, I think the riders need. I think the, the safety is is 
is number one on my list. And what I really want to put in place is a standalized system. So riders know if they go to the Giro Tour or they do Flanders, it's the same system. I don't want riders to think, okay, we're in the Giro. They have this type of signage in the Giro. They go to the Tour, they have a different type of signage and they do Flanders. It's They have something different. I want just one system put in place. Um, I don't want riders to think, what, we, what race we're at, what different rules, different marshals. Um, this is something that I, I really want to be put in place. Um, at the moment, I don't really have any other – well, it's the joint agreement. This is – the insurances are horrible in the joint agreement. Um, I found some flaws in the sense where some teams are just having travel insurance. Um, but when I mean travel insurance, I mean like the, the travel – the basic travel insurance, which does not – on uh, dangerous sports so if you have a crash in canada or um or in china um some insurance companies would not honor the insurance because they don't they think it's a, a tourist tra travel insurance not a racing travel insurance so th these are i really want to um improve the insurances and so the joint agreement so every rider is safe and covered on these international races um but at the moment, I, I, they're the things that I, I really want to do for the riders. Um, the end goal, um, yeah, I would like a system where all riders make good money. Um, I know the top is making very good money at the moment. I also want to help the um, the little guys. I think they, they're also putting on the show. They also um, contribute to the leader's success. I, I really want to increase the, the minimum wage of the riders. Um, but the real end goal at the moment, I'm just listening and being uh, active on what the riders wishes. And when I get a bit of a break, I can think of a more long-term strategy. Alrighty. I don't think I don't have many more questions because we covered a lot of topics, some heavy stuff. Maybe just to finish on a really easy note, you guys can have a 50-minute free laugh at my expenses. Then you go, dang, that actually makes sense. So here we go. We can totally get rid of the weather protocol by implementing this one rule. It, the race can only start and go through if the race organizer, the UCI commissaire, and the main sponsor can follow the race in an open convertible car. If it's too rainy for them, it's rainy for the riders. If it's too hot for them in a convertible car, it is too hot for the riders. How about that? Easy, simple, and we solve one huge problem, right? Jens, that's uh, that's way too uh, logical. Uh, I think um, <laughs> yes. I agree with you, but I think those three would not agree with you to implement that. There's the problem. That's the bottom of the problem already there. 100%. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day or your very early morning back there in Australia and joining us today on Bobby and Jens. We are blessed. The sport is blessed. The riders in the sport are blessed that there's someone as passionate and as professional as you at the helm of the CPA and wish you all the best. I want to remove all those roadblocks in your future so that all these meetings that you go to are, you know, just drinking a nice glass of Chardonnay, well, you don't drink, so uh, a nice glass of s mineral water and putting your feet up and looking at the way that you've made this sport better for both men and women. So thank you very much again. Perfect. Thank you very much, Bobby and Jens. I appreciate your time. Okay, Yenzi, um, 
obviously this was a first for us, not the normal funny banter back and forth. Um, it was great talking to Adam on a very unfortunate day after the passing of Gino Mater. Um, what did you think of the talk that we had? We covered some good points. Um, Adam came across with some good ideas. Um, and he is the right man in the right place for this time. Uh, but yeah, you could see all three of us were, were touched by, by the loss of, of um, Gino Mader. Um, now that we have been at cycling for many, many years, unfortunately, we have seen this happen before, but it is still always a very sad and a terrible moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it did bring back some memories because I think as athletes, we do compartmentalize some of the negative things, the the fear, um, the risk that we take. Um, personally, I was touched in 1995 when Fabio Casatelli died in the um, the Tour de France. I was on Motorola. Um, he had just had a son. It, it was really tough to deal with. I wasn't racing, obviously, the Tour de France in 1995. Um, I was living in Sacramento, and it was just such a shock. That was the first time I had something like that happen. But unfortunately, it happened again in 2003 with Andre um, Kivilev, which was incredibly hard for me because I actually went up on my front wheel to avoid smashing into him and saw him laying on the ground and knew right away that something wasn't good. Um, obviously, throughout the years, we've had more um more and more unfortunate accidents like this um what is what is your experience uh in this very unfortunate um conversation about teammates or close friends passing from during the races or training i i was in the same race when kiwi left past i was not racing uh, with casatelli but with Kiwi left and then it for me personally it became really close when 2011 we lost teammate uh, Walter Weyland in the Giro Italia and we just landed in California to participate in Tour of California when the news uh, broke that uh, Walter had a crash and then later that um, he passed and it, it, it's always a, a really terrible moment where you then question yourself your existence, your your job. Um, plus, Walter was my teammate in a January training camp. So only two months or three months ago, he was my my roommate. Um, and so I tried to to get my head around what what I should make out of it. And knowing Walter, he is uh, such a um, positive person. He embraced life. He had great humor. Um, and I think if there could have been, would have been a connection to Wouter up in the sky in forever in heaven, I'm sure he would have said, guys, it's nobody's fault. I race and it is my life and I wanted to race and I don't want you to suffer for me. I want this to be a tragic, but an important reminder 
Life is short, life is dangerous, life throws you a curveball every now and then. So just go out, embrace life to the maximum, make the best out of your life. As you just can see, um, life might end sometimes quicker than you think. So just go out, make the best out of it. Give all the love to your friends and family and race as hard as you can. Just enjoy life. Um, so I think Bauta would have said exactly these words if he could have still talked to me. And I think if I am in heaven, I will talk down to the kids and go, hey, go, go out and enjoy life. So I took it this way. It, it, it took me a day to think about it and I was grieving. Um, but in the end, I ended up thinking, Bauta didn't want us to abandon our races and abandon our jobs and you know, uh, stop our lives. I'm sure he would have gone, guys, just go out and give it all you have. Well, that's, that's a very good point, Yenzi, because, you know, we, we saw some teams um, stop the Tour de Suisse. And then we also saw some teams continue the Tour de Suisse. You know, it's a very fine line. It's There's not a right and wrong answer. You know, Remco Evenepoel won the stage of the Tour de Suisse today by attacking out of respect for honoring Gino when some other riders went home. So personally, I know that they continued the Tour de France in 1995 because I think they were like, yeah, we need to do this for Fabio. And Lance Armstrong wound up winning an amazing stage and dedicated it to Fabio, which was amazing. And for me personally, I was rooming with Alexander Vinokurov, who was Andre Kivilev's best friend. And when we heard that he passed, I think all of us in the team telecom bus were like, okay, we're not racing today. We're not, it's over. Like we need to support you. And it was amazing. I'll never forget Alexander went under a tree outside of the bus and you could tell that he was crying and he came back in 10 minutes later dried his eyes and looked at it looked at us and said now I race and I must win for Kiwi and he did he did win Perry Nice so I think there's not a right and wrong way here I mean I think I know it's very uncomfortable for for everyone in this situation what do you do? What you don't do? What do you say? What you don't say? But let's just hope that this is not a reoccurring theme, right? We we know when we race, we took risks. Personally, when I go out and ride my bike these days, I have a front tail light and a rear radar tail light. And I'm doing as much as I can, obeying the the rules of the road being seen by the the other motorists. And I've always thought that, you know, if it's my time, it's my time. You know, this blinky light and this light on the front of my bike will hopefully put the odds in my favor. But um, just, again, great ch chat with, with Adam. I know he's under a lot of pressure. One thing that really stood out to me was his dedication to what he's doing. And he's not going to be able to make everyone happy. We know that. Um, and I'm just 
was so stoked to have him on the podcast and to hear his work ethic and his focus and his dedication to helping the riders in the current Peloton. So Adam, hats off, my friend. Keep fighting the good fight. And I know that you have the respect of the riders as well as myself and Jens. So um, there we go. 